If you'd like to turn with me, we're reading this morning from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 16, because we're going through the Psalms this summer, Psalm 16 is a mountaintop among the Psalms. If there are a handful of Psalms throughout all the 150 of them that people tend to remember and memorize and, and, and appreciate the most, Psalm 16 is one of them, a mountaintop. There are a lot of Psalms that were composed and sung in very dark valleys. Uh, this is a mountaintop because of the perspective that David shares. There's a lot of hope here. And that's our hope today in, in the message and in the prayers and in even the music that was selected to give you hope. Um, if you look at verse 1, though, you're going to notice that whatever circumstance brought about the composition of Psalm 16, it was a dire circumstance. In fact, if you take verse 1 out, which says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If you, if you overlook verse 1, you may assume by the rest of the psalm that David was writing and praying uh, from a state of bliss and tranquility. You know, good times, if you don't have verse 1. But considering verse 1, you have to realize this beautiful mountaintop of a psalm was born out of adversity. David's hurting. Preserve me, O God. That word meant guard me, keep me. <laughs> keep me safe, as the NIV translation says. So this psalm really is an opportunity to run to God when you're hurting. In your adversity, in, in your danger and fear, in your depression... Psalm 16 is a great place to go for you. Uh, actually, there's, there's a place where David even says later on in verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad. You know, he starts the psalm of saying, help me, Lord, keep me safe. And he ends up saying things like, my heart is glad. Right? How, did he, how did he get there? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and the title of the message is A Glad Heart for Troubled Times. In trouble, how do, you develop, how do you develop a glad heart? Well, David did. He had one. 
because nothing could rob him from God's good presence. I'm, I'm convinced that that's what he believed. Nothing can rob us of God's good presence if we trust him by faith. And as I, un, and as I unpack that statement, I really want to address three things today. First is the state of gladness in which you see David in his words, and also the means of the gladness that he had, how it came about, where it came from, and then finally, the promise of gladness that you can even have, like David did. So the state of gladness, the means by which gladness comes, and then finally, the promise that assures you of gladness. That's what we're going to look at. Now, the state of this gladness that you see in Psalm 16 is something to which David committed himself. It was an act of volition. He, he pursued gladness as opposed to giving into, conceding to despair. Again, he says in verse 1, he opens with the words, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Protect me. I'm struggling. I'm in danger. He, he, he's pleading for the good presence of God in his life. Right? He's asking for that. And so he asks for protection, but he does something else. He stands for what's true. And he does it in two ways. You'll see it in verses 2 and then again in verses 3 and 4. He stands for the truth by saying in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, that's a remarkable statement to make. That somebody feels that he has no good apart from his creator. And really, the only, the only way to really understand what David's saying there is to keep reading through the psalm. So we'll come back to that. For now, I would say this. David knows at this point that the solution to his adversity, to the danger, right? the resolution of it, the relief, the safety from it must rely on the presence of God. If God is not in the equation, he's not going to have any safety. He's not going to have any deliverance. He's not going to have any peace of mind. So he takes a stand for the truth by first remembering he is my Lord and I have no good apart from him. But he, do, he also stands for the truth in how he associates with other people. Because in verses three and four, he says, maybe you thought this was a little odd. And, and where did this fit in the progression of thought in his psalm? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, in a pinch, David took stock of his social affiliations. When you're struggling, when you're in a tight spot, do you look around you and ask yourself, who am I listening to? Where are my influences coming from? Who's counseling me? Who's advising me? Who do I kind of, who am I drawn towards? Actually, in the very first Psalm, we looked at Psalm 1 last summer. The very verse, the very first verse of the book of Psalms says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So bad company brings bad advice. And when you're hurting, you need to clarify in your mind of all the people in the world and of all the people around me, the people in my community, the people I work with, the people who have authority over me, what I hear in the news and the media and in movies and TV shows and in popular music, 
what I've studied, who stands for God's truth, who does not. David is making distinctions right here regarding what's going on in the world around him and all those influences. So he pleads for God's help and he aligns himself with others who think the same way. Because they're going to encourage the same perspective. So he pleads for God's help here in the first four verses, but then he reflects on the benefits of God's help. He says, I need God's good presence right now. But then he reflects on what it actually means to have God's good presence. And really, he reflects on this verses five through five through eight in three ways. He talks about inheritance that he gets from God and he talks about God's counsel and he talks about God's protection. Verses five through six, he talks about this inheritance that he has. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, the Israelites would have remembered that when they were saved from slavery out of Egypt and they entered the land of Canaan, that after all the enemies were conquered, the Lord assigned to the different tribes of Israel different regions of the promised land. They all received as part of their inheritance different plots of land. And David is saying here, God is my inheritance. God is my inheritance. Just like in the book of Numbers. The Lord told the Israelites, uh, the Levites, I'm sorry. You know, you don't have your own land. You're here in the tabernacle, so I'm your inheritance. You get me. And David, David understands that and he applies it to himself. I have a beautiful inheritance. I have the Lord's presence. God's presence is greater than wealth, it's greater than land, it's greater than pleasure. The things that we tend to take stock in and seek and pride ourselves in when we're afraid and when we're doubting, right? We kind of look at what our assets are and try and find encouragement in that. David was a military leader, he was a king, he pretty much could have anything he wanted. But he said, the Lord is my inheritance, Not only that, but David reflects upon the fact that God gives him counsel. He says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So God's truth is guiding him, especially at the night when, you know this, right? When you lie awake, your thoughts start racing. And when you're you're worried about something and you can't sleep, it, it just consumes your thoughts while you're lying there in bed, doesn't it? And David is saying that God's truth follows him into the night. So that when he's lying on his bed and he's tempted to be afraid and he's wrestling with these thoughts of the danger that is real to him, he remembers God's truth. And so with God's truth, he is advising himself while he's lying awake at night and he can't sleep. He goes further than this, though. He not only says, God is my inheritance and God is my counselor. He says, God's my protector. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He knows that God is right, right there, right by his side, his right side. That's where the power was to the ancients, on the right, in the right hand, on the right side. God is advocating for me. He's there for me. He's defending me. 
It was earlier in Psalm 10 that the wicked said, I shall not be shaken. It's the exact same Hebrew expression here. I shall not be shaken in verse 8. But David's reasons for thinking that he's not going to be shaken are completely different because he's not trusting in himself. He's trusting in the Lord. So he just reflects on the benefits of God's good presence in his life. And he comes to a marvelous conclusion. That actually allows him to rejoice. This is where the gladness comes from. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, so this is, this is, since I've reflected, this is my conclusion. Okay. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. The NIV translation says you won't abandon my soul to the grave. That's the idea. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So presently, because there, there's, there's, you, have to, you have to relate to what he's saying on two different levels. Presently, David feels safe. He may be in danger, but he chooses not to succumb to fear. And he says, I'm safe I'm at peace, even in the midst of danger, because God will not abandon me to the grave. So in one sense, take it that way. But here's something else. He's also saying that even if the worst happens, even if my death is the result of what I'm going through, God won't abandon me even to my death. He won't, he won't abandon me in the grave. Yes, I'm going to die, but God won't leave me there. Death is not a separation from my creator. Death cannot separate me from all of these benefits that I know I have in the Lord. God's presence will pursue him even beyond this, this mortal life. So David pleads for God's presence in this situation. And then he reflects upon God's good presence and, and it leads him to rejoicing. He says nothing about his circumstances changing, but his perspective, his perspective does. The scholar Derek Kidner, and we have Derek Kidner's commentary on the Psalms on the book table. If, if it's a good read if you're interested in following along. Um, that's a really helpful commentary. But Derek Kidner says that in verse 1, David is talking like a refugee. But by verse 9, he's talking like an heir. He's talking like a son who's going to inherit a kingdom. Now, how did he get there? How, how, did, how was David able to be glad in danger? How was he able to be hopeful? How was he able to be content? Well, let's talk about the means of gladness. Let's, let's talk about how he got there. It's all about the habit and the discipline, the wonderful habit and discipline of biblical meditation. Verses 5 through 8, which we just kind of looked at when David reflects on God's presence. Verses 5 through 8 is really a great illustration, once again, of the very first psalm. The very first psalm, the second verse, we read these words. You know, the, the guy that doesn't associate with or sit in the seat of the wicked. 
what, is, what does Psalm 1, 2 say? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Am I on the right slide? Sorry. Yep. Yeah, so here's what biblical meditation is, because it's different than what you may have heard Eastern meditation is. Okay? Biblical meditation, the Hebrew word for meditate in Psalm 1, it, it meant to murmur or to mutter something. And it also meant to chew on something. So the ancient imagery was somebody talking to themselves about what they knew is true of God. Uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, has maybe the best definition I've ever heard for what biblical meditation is. He said, meditation is talking to yourself about God. What you know is true from God's word, now reminding yourself of it. And reflecting on it, just like David does in Psalm 16. Here's another example from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, he's not talking to God there. He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Read the rest of Psalm 103 if you want to hear what those benefits actually are. So meditation, from the psalmist's perspective, is, is not simply reading the Bible it's not simply memorizing scripture. It's not simply going to Bible study or going to community group or reading a book together about theology. It's not just listening to podcasts of lectures and sermons. Meditation is taking what you've studied, is taking what you've heard, is taking what you've memorized and allowing it, allowing it to penetrate your mind to get right there into your soul, to permeate your whole existence and change the way you think and change the way you live. That's what true meditation is. That's why Psalm 1 talks about meditation. Because that's what really opens up the floodgates of your prayer life. Is meditation. Now you've got something to pray about. Now you have something to rejoice in. Now you have, have something to cry out to God because you've meditated on what is true. And what Tim Keller and his wife Kathy do in a couple of their writings uh, is they give a very helpful three, he doesn't like doing this, but he does it here, and I think it's very helpful, kind of three steps to making meditation um, um, easy to understand and to actually do, and I found this to be very helpful. The first is to adore. And it's really to read scripture and just ask yourself, what, what did you learn about God for which you could praise or thank him? Uh, but then, also, to admit. What did you learn about yourself from which you could repent? And then finally, aspire. What did you learn about life that you could aspire to, ask for, or act on? Adore, admit, aspire. Another way of saying that is you read scripture, read the Bible, read something like Psalm 16, read it a few times. And then ask yourself three questions. What am I learning about God? What am I learning about myself? And what needs to change in my life if all of this is true? So David, in meditation, because that's what you see in verses 5 through 8. Through meditation, David took his anxious thoughts captive. Right? He grabs a hold of them and he wrestles them down. 
and he drags them into the light of God's truth. He doesn't just take his thoughts for granted and assume they're true and accurate. And he doesn't just take other people's advice, especially what's common out there in the world, for granted and assume that it is true. He captures it and grabs it all and drags it into the light of Scripture. And he starts muttering it to himself and reflecting on what God's word says. And that is what affects him. That's what gives him a glad heart. I mean, meditating, if you will, uh, meditation, it's talking yourself away from the edge of a cliff when you're frightened. When you're ready to do something that you think you might regret or say something that you shouldn't. When you're afraid, when you're struggling, meditation, it, it just helps you back away from the edge of the cliff. You kind of talk yourself out of it. And I can say from experience that, that you can actually prayerfully meditate your way um, out of a panic attack. You can. You can prayerfully meditate yourself out of a panic attack. Because God is now back in the center of your field of vision. He was off to the side, or as like Rachel told the kids earlier, uh, the problems that you're looking at have eclipsed his light. But as you begin to meditate on what he says and what you know is true from his word, what his promises are and who he is, well, now he's back in the center of your field of view, and now you regain perspective. So if you remember anything today, I would encourage you first to take the opportunity to practice meditation. Meditate, reflect on what you know to be true of God as you find it in the scriptures. Because the alternative, friends, is allowing yourself to be captured by your own thoughts. The alternative is allowing your own thoughts to control you when you're scared and when you're depressed and when you're confused. Um, you know this. You, at times, you're faced with danger or uh, you know, you're faced with an unsolvable dilemma. You do not have an answer to the problem. You, you're getting no relief. You, know, you can't reason your way out of this thing and there doesn't seem to be any help. Or you're in a conflict and it's heartbreaking. It's tearing you up this conflict you're in. Whatever it is, you've experienced this, right? One anxious thought gives birth to another. And that next thought gives birth to another thought. One anxious thought is manageable, but, but once you're 10 anxious thoughts down, <laughs> right, you're in a tailspin. You're in a tailspin that you find you can't get yourself out of. You are, you're in a nosedive and you're headed, you're headed right for the surface of the earth. Right? David pulls himself out of that nosedive in meditation on what he knows is true of God's word. Without meditation, you can't handle adversity well. If you do not live a life as a Christian of meditation, you can't, handle, you can't suffer well. You can't handle your conflicts well if you don't practice a life of meditation. And you can't, you cannot anticipate your death in a healthy way. Because come on, let's be honest, so much of what we do is because we know we're going to die. It all kind of comes from there anyway. Our looming death kind of gives us an urgency when we're afraid we're going to lose something or someone. 
But David, though he was in danger, he was clearly not afraid of death. And I think it's because he understands, as you read verse 11, that God owns death. The same Lord uh, that gives him himself for an inheritance also owns the grave. And that's the promise. That's the promise of gladness that we see here in Psalm 16. And that you see ultimately realized in the New Testament. God owns death. The Apostle John had a vision of things to come when Jesus comes back to judge the earth and to renew it and to restore humanity. And he entered the presence of Jesus and Jesus said to him, this is Revelation chapter one, fear not, look at that, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. And that's what's, what's most interesting is that Peter and Paul, two pillars of the early church who wrote a lot of the New Testament, Peter and Paul both attribute Psalm 16 to Jesus. Did David know that he was talking about his, his descendant that would be the great king, the Messiah? Maybe. Maybe not. It doesn't matter because we believe that the Holy Spirit works through those who composed the words of Scripture to not only apply Scripture to what they were dealing with at the time, but to apply Scripture for us so that we would benefit from it. As you read Scripture, especially passages like Psalm 16, there is a present and future reality to what the psalm reads. And this is just such a psalm. Because Jesus taught his disciples how the scriptures and the Psalms and the prophets and the law all pointed to him. And now you have guys like Peter and Paul saying, this is about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up in Jerusalem and speaks, he said, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. You see, Peter quotes the end of Psalm 16. And he goes on to say, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And Paul said something very similar. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, speaking in Pisidian Antioch, in Asia Minor, he said to, the, to his listeners, we all know, and he quoted, Acts, he quoted Psalm 16, and he said, we all know that David died and saw, his body saw corruption. So he can't just be talking about himself. The one who died and rose three days before corruption could biologically set in was Jesus of Nazareth. So David, by the Spirit of God, spoke of himself and spoke of this coming king. Because Christianity is all about God restoring creation. God restoring humanity, God restoring our, restoring our souls and our very bodies. This not only gives you hope in light of your coming death, it gives you hope when you have a cold or a broken, a broken arm or a concussion or whether you're struggling with depression. Because if Jesus is greater than death, 
then surely he's greater than what you're facing right now. So Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, really echoed the spirit of what David's saying in this psalm when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right now, I already have my inheritance. It's Jesus. That's what David, that's what Abraham had to learn in Genesis. He was promised a son, but he had to discover that the real promise wasn't Isaac. The real promise was God himself. When you entrust yourself to the God of the Bible, you get the God of the Bible. That's the promise throughout scripture. It's not riches. It's not children. It's not a wife or a husband. It's not respect. It's not health. The promise is God himself. And Paul understood it's Jesus. To live is Christ. I have him already. And to die is even better. Because I will see him. Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us, is God's good presence. And Paul, understanding that, he would go on in Philippians chapter 3 to say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, you can't get away from your death. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' body did not corrupt in the tomb, and neither will yours. So finally, we can understand what David said in verse 2. Which was, I have no good apart from you. Friends, if you can say to God, if you can say to Jesus, I have no good apart from you. Well, then you can have a glad heart. When you suffer, you can have a glad heart when you're dealing with conflict. You can have a glad heart if you believe you are facing your own death. Today's troubles, tomorrow's uncertainties, death itself cannot rob us from the presence of God. David believed it. I believe it. Believe it. Believe it. Let's pray.